Hi team, it's Michael Henry Harris. This is the Origin Story Podcast. And in this episode, we're back to our usual format, conversations with superheroes from all walks of life. And I will introduce our hero in just a moment. A couple of housekeeping things. If you haven't signed up for the Flock email, please do so. It's two emails a month. The first has your minimum monthly dose of art, curated by me. And the second has an update on all things Pinecone Turkey. It's the best way to keep up with everything that we're doing. It has news about our latest podcasts and, of course, uh, news on any other projects that we're working on. And we actually have an upcoming project that is uh, in the beginning stages. And that is the 12 Authors, 12 Stories Anthology for 2019. Uh, first of all, thanks to everyone who's made the 2018 anthology such a success. All my writers, editors, and everyone who has purchased the book and spread the word. Uh, I'm really pleased with how it turned out and how it's been received. But we're doing it again. And uh, we'll be announcing this year's theme and announcing open submissions very, very soon. So if you or someone you know would like to be invited to submit, uh, we would love love to, to read your stuff. So if you would send me an email at info at pineconeturkey.com, I'll be sure to add your name and email to our submissions list. And we're looking forward to reading everyone's stories. And that'll be going out really, really soon. So go ahead and send that in to me so you have the full time to create something wonderful for next year's anthology. All right, today's guest, uh, Jeffrey Christopher Meacham, uh, also known as Jeff, uh, serves as Managing Director and Senior Research, An- Research Analyst at Barclays Bank. Uh, Dr. Meacham joined Barclays in December of 2014 and covers the United States biotechnology sector. Previously, he were also covered the equity sector in North America and pharmaceutical sectors and biotechnology sectors at J.P. Morgan Chase. And he also worked at USB Bank, working uh, in a similar vein. Uh, prior to his career on Wall Street, he worked in industry at Solvay Pharmaceuticals and has been a board of directors at Acuitis since 2015. He's been ranked for the past five years in the Institutional Investor Poll since 2000. Seven. That doesn't make exactly a lot of sense. But bottom line, he's been ranked in this institutional investor poll, which is a big deal in this industry. Uh, he's been number two since 2008. Uh, Dr. Meacham earned a PhD in molecular and cellular biology from UAB and a BS in biology and microbiology from the University of Georgia. Go dogs! And that's where I first met Jeff. Uh, Jeff's a fascinating dude to me. He's a great guy. And I realize that I, I say that about every one of our guests, but it's because I don't want to spend any time with jerks. Uh, so hopefully everybody I interview is going to be a great person. Uh, but this guy, he really is. And uh, what's cool about this interview, uh, for, from my point of view, is that even though Jeff and I have been friends for years and years and years, I really got to see a different side of him, uh, a side that I don't get to see in, in our life when we're hanging out. Uh, one is his just intelligence. Uh, I know he's a smart guy. It's not like we're going around saying dumb things all the time. But uh, there's a level of knowledge that he has in the scientific industry and also the financial industry that is just in sitting in the back of his brain and he can, he can use it at any time he wants. But normally we're talking about uh, you know what flavor of beer we're going to buy and Georgia football. So it was fun to see him uh, exercise that side of his brain uh, in my presence because I normally don't get that. And then also to see uh, his hard work and ambition. Again, I know these are there in him. But listening to him talk about his work made the shine in a way that they get. I don't get to see because he's a laid back, nice guy. He doesn't really fall into what I generally think of as a Wall Street stereotype uh, regarding maybe um, 
yeah, just whatever my own stereotype that I won't go into. But you maybe you have that same stereotype. I don't know. Uh, so it was fun on, on a number of levels. One, just to hang out with him and, and talk a little bit about him, his process. Uh, you know, I really don't know what going through a PhD program looks like. Um, so I was very interested in that. Uh, hopefully you will be too. And also how you transfer out of what the main line to a program is like this. There's a certain route that PhDs go through. And when you buck that, uh, that's risky and interesting to me. And it's, uh, I enjoyed going into uh, his psyche regarding those decisions and how he decided what to do with, uh, with the skills and knowledge that he has. So I think you'll enjoy it. I know that I did. Um, it was making me want to be a little more competitive and ambitious in uh, certain things that I do, uh, you know, in regard to myself mainly, of course. But uh, I also got lots of little little tidbits out there as well uh, during the podcast. So I think you'll enjoy it. I hope you do. Without any further ado, here's Jeff Meacham. But I won't because I can tell it embarrasses you. Uh, what did you get your PhD in? Uh, molecular cell biology. Okay. And were you a science geek growing up? Like, how did I mean, that's, that's hardcore. Yeah, no, I, I was a um, biology and microbiology major uh, at Georgia. And then I was initially thinking pre med. And then. Um, I had to make a decision between sort of science and and medicine and graduate school, and I was interested more on the science side. What about it was was more interesting to you? And how did you go about making that decision? Are you a, do you? Well, so I, so my history is that I went you know uh, undergrad, and then when I graduated, I worked for two years at a pharma company and got more of a I'd say industry um, influence just to. Th- think that I didn't necessarily want to see patients every day that I wanted to advance, want to be part of advancing, you know, assets or new products or making discoveries, right? So that was the more intriguing part. Well, let's, let's go back just a little bit. So yep. when you're, you're at Georgia, when did you declare like a major, like a science uh, So a uh, bachelor's biology and uh, also one in microbiology. So when you were a freshman, were you like, okay, med school is whatever I'm going, so let's major in biology? or Pretty it? much, yeah, Okay, pretty much. Did you have like a type of medicine that you thought you wanted to practice? No, not really. I mean, I was, I had so, so much fun my first couple of years of, of undergrad that I kind of, Took myself out of the instant med school <laughs> yeah. crowd. Were you? Uh, did you dig a hole? I dug. A I hole. dug a pretty deep hole. <laughs> freshman and sophomore year, and then I kind of figured it out. Um, the pre med advisor uh, laughed at me the first meeting that I had <laughs> with my GPA, and then uh, yeah, I kind of crawled out of it. Um, junior and senior year let's let's spend just a little bit of time on this <laughs> digging the whole thing because i would like to prevent uh my child from digging a hole like what did you do what did i do what do we do wrong and what what can we do to make it where the next generation does not do that <laughs> well i think today the i guess when i was an undergrad there weren't that many obviously the internet wasn't invented um 
And in Athens, I think the theme was really, you know, we're go to band parties and have fun. And there wasn't, it depends on the crowd that you kind of ran with, right? Were you a good so, student in high school? Uh, yeah, I was like, th- you know, three uh, oh to three low threes. Gotcha. I wasn't like, you know, I didn't, I didn't have a lot of, um, I wasn't massively motivated. So it's funny in, uh, in high school, you know, I applied to a bunch of different schools and my parents pretty much said, we're going to, you can pick between Georgia and tech. (laughs) I wasn't like, yeah, I wasn't like really born and, you know, raised like a Georgia fan or, you know, that I was adamant I was going to the school, but it was kind of selected for me. And then I kind of grew into it. Um, and, and yeah, it's just, I, I, it was, I guess a restrictive environment. If you have that in high school, then you tend to rage the first year or two in college. Yeah. Um, which is kind of what I did. And then, you know, when I joined a fraternity, that was sophomore year. Um, and continued that. And then you, you're around people that have greater ambitions, right? So it's more than just organizing band parties and socials. Um, but then I also saw people in college that were too far, you know, driven. I have to be top of my class or I hundred percent going to go to an Ivy league law school or med school. And those weren't the fun cool kids so you were was it a conscious choice to try to kind of be somewhere in the middle of that and say all right i'm gonna have fun but i'm also it was seriously enough to do well it was once i kind of saw the light i don't really know what the what the switch was to be honest like was it like your junior year is that yeah i would say so yeah it was the realization that like i'm not getting into medical school if i continue on this trend Um, med school is so hard to get into compared to law school, and I, I don't. I think at some point I knew around junior year that I was probably going to go to law school, uh, but there's so many of them, and you don't have to really do well to go to law school. You know. Well, yeah, the, I mean, I did okay on the MCATs, you know, and I definitely would have to, um, you know, crush it, you know, junior and senior year, and and I also stayed at Georgia for an extra two quarters. Uh, and I did research actually. I had uh, I convinced my parents to stay an extra two quarters. Um, back then, it wasn't semesters, and uh, I played a lot of golf. And I <laughs> did um, I did some research for a, for a researcher who was based in South Africa. So that introduced me to the lab, but not and not a, a classroom setting, but a, a sort of laboratory where here's a project, be creative, right? And that. And that was kind of that was helpful as I was finishing undergrad to what my next step was going to be. So, how did you find that job right out of college? That two years at uh, the pharmaceutical company. You know, um, I I looked I, when I came. I didn't really know anyone at the company. I, I kind of um, was just went on a, a general job search and uh, didn't want to move anywhere. I didn't really have ambitions of say working in pharma or biotech. It just happened to be in a related field where I can use my degree. Uh, and it was really, it's kind of fascinating because I was the young guy and I finished everything that I was supposed to do every day in about two hours. <laughs> and they're like, 
the the message to me was, Jeff, you need to fill up eight hours a day. <laughs> oh my gosh! And I was like, well, this is not hell? a government run lab. No, sure? Exactly. And so after one year of working for this pharma company, I um, end up doing three different jobs. Like I was QA, QC. I had some research component. I had some regulatory input, and everyone was telling me like, you're making us look so bad. I'm like, well, I'm not going to be bored. I'm not going to sit around for four hours a day. So, <laughs> so why was it like? Why was it set up like that? It's just the that's the bureaucracy. That's actually helpful to what I do now. Is is you you tend to realize what a a corporate kind of no no stress job will do. Like you you can just drift for years, and people you know had been there for ten. 15 years and hadn't there it was a nine to five and that was it it wasn't a career it was just way a way to pay the bills it was a job did uh how long were you there before you realized that that's not going to be satisfactory i mean i after about three months i kind of knew that this isn't what i want to do long term and i'd already i'd already thought ahead of time that i'd want to work for a couple years as a a stepping stone right between undergrad and some sort of graduate school, be it PhD or MD or something like that. You still think MD at this point while you're at the farm company? Um, yeah, I was. Yeah. Cause I'd done some studying for the, for the MCATs, but I did like the research piece at, at undergrad and I liked the laboratory piece that I was working at, you know, so the pieces were coming together, you know, um, from that perspective. Um, where are you living? Where is, where's the company? Uh, it's in Marietta. Okay. Uh, it was Salve pharmaceuticals. It's now, I think they were sold to, uh, uh, Abbott labs many, many years ago. Uh, but yeah, I came, you know, moved in, you know, moved back home with the parents. And then after, I don't know, six months found an apartment, you know, and it was a good paying job for a 22 year old. Right. So you're there for two years, and tell me again, or maybe not again, but maybe elaborate a little bit more on the the decision making process between med school and and I guess it was it another concrete thing that you were thinking of, or just or is it more nebulous than that? It was more nebulous, I would say. The um, I I really did did like the the research component of it, the fact that you can, you know. It's cause effect. You can see something in the lab and and directly attribute the result to something that you did, right? So there's a, a there's a creativity about it um, versus medicine, which I, I know is it, it is reactive, right? You 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 see a patient and you go down a decision tree of what their symptoms are and and you kind of figure it out. Uh, there's not a lot of I wouldn't say creativity. There's not a lot of novelty about it, right? It's it's your it's a physician's acumen in determining what the symptoms are, and sometimes they don't present, you know, as cleanly. But I had a lot of discussions with you know with uh, friends, you know, about their experiences in medical school, and I did, actually didn't know too many people that went along the scientist route. I was kind of the the novel, you know, person. Yeah, I, I honestly, I, I know very few, and I think part of that yeah. is going to a school like Georgia versus like Georgia Tech or something yeah, more yeah. more science yeah, based. Right. Um, so I went in this medical school interview, 
at, at Tulane. So it was a MD PhD program, which is a horrendous investment. I mean, <laughs> we're talking like ten years, right? So I go on this, and there happens to be uh, uh, it was a, a it was uh, in New Orleans. And it happens to be uh, the same weekend as there was a massive flood. So I'm staying at a friend's house, and I have an interview the next morning. And I was all fine and good. And I woke up, and like literally, I woke up and opened the door, and it was water as far as the eye could see. And <laughs> and I looked out for a second, and then there's a a person in a in a really like a flat boat, like yeah. a really a lure was cast at my, like 10 feet from my feet. This <laughs> like, is this. And so, um, you obviously had to make sure the house wasn't, you know, wrecked or and an interview, like just kind of went belly up. Yeah. Um, I imagine so. But, <laughs> but that was one of the, you know, that was, that was a, that would have been a, a far different path. Right. I mean, that's, I don't know what path that, I mean, that, that's like a, just the education component of it is a decade, not to mention like any sort of fellowship after that or any kind of postdoctoral fellowship or, right. or medical. Um, and oh. then I started to sort of tune into, you know, other graduate programs in either cell biology or microbiology. So I started to visit a bunch of other schools. Uh, and I found that I really liked that. The more I talked to some of the professors, and researchers, the more I liked the, that component of it. And so I, something in that, like that second year that I was at the pharma company, um, some switch was kind of flipped and I was much more biased to research. Uh, I, I'm glad you did that because it feels like a, like a sign from God. Like, don't go to med school. Like, right. I, if, I mean, <laughs> exactly. like if we're gonna come out like to have flooding in the streets <laughs> to prevent you from interviewing. It feels That's like true. not the uh, not the right move. So, uh, as you're talking to people and you're like um, your second year working with this company, and what about the work that you spoke to folks about? What about it appealed to you? You know, they. Um I like the fact that the the company had a ton of they had a number of things on the on the market. So there's it wasn't like a pure discovery, you know, research intensive company. They actually had proven themselves and had, you know, marketed drugs, right? And so um, it was kind of fun to to you know to test like the safety of some of these on an ongoing basis. To have also the learned technologies, like there's you know. Devices called uh, HPLCs, uh, chromatographer, chromatography machines, uh, GCs. Um, so we, I learned a, a, the equipment was really kind of neat to learn every little component of it and how that fit into like the the monitoring of an existing drug. And so you know you kind of feel like you're on the line there, you know, front lines. If you see a safety signal that has real consequences, right, to what a patient could take, right? But you weren't so patient facing that you know if you see some sort of nasty event that you know you're you're not the treating physician you know you're sort of in the background so what uh when did you end up going back to school um i saw it's two two years at the pharma company and then uh, literally at my two-year anniversary i went to uh um I enrolled at UAB in Birmingham. So how did you pick that school and, the, and that program? So it was interesting that I interviewed at a bunch of different programs. And um, UAB had, um, 
It's called the, jeez, uh, um, uh, I forget, the CMB program, uh, Cellular Molecular Biology program, where it was a feeder. So, you know, you'd, they would pick 25, 30 students, and um, you'd have one year of classes, and then you had something like, I mean, it was like 350 different labs you can go into. And these were specialties. Like you go in the Department of Medicine, you can go into Department of Cell Biology, Microbiology, um, Biochemistry. There's a, and then within all those, all those departments, there were probably 50 different professors that had, you know, different areas of specialties of expertise why is it so, such a huge center that sounds amazing yeah no it's a um a lot of programs now i think are are have that same structure where you have sort of a one-year sort of consolidating you know uh, everyone learns the same background education you know and and then they they spin off into different labs and so just the choices is what i liked right because you weren't you weren't you didn't know exactly what you were wanting to do is that correct or yeah I, I mean i um well so there there's a personal history to this so I, I um when i got into it and i looked at some of the disease areas i always thought you know i don't want to study like the structure of a protein or a pathway um on its own it had to apply to a a, a human disease and it was actually kind of it was really personal because I, I went into um, a, a lab that had um, a focus on cystic fibrosis. And so when I was a kid growing up in Columbus, you know, one of my best friends died from CF. And then when I was in high school, I used to volunteer at like CF camps. And so, but it, I, I never really thought, you know, about going into this as a field, but it was kind of presented to me as you can do research in a disease that you know well. And that was super exciting. Like yeah. I was instantly like, you know. Oh, I'm sure a laser focus. Yeah. Uh, was finance at all in your mind? Or are you pure science at this point? No, no, no. So it's it's just so funny because there's been like a couple evolutions of the career. So And that's what I want to yeah, yeah. pin down on those moments. Yeah. But first of all, just for our listeners and, and my own ignorance. So what what is a PhD program like? Are you how long is, does it take? And yeah, yeah, yeah. When does it go from does it go masters and then PhD? Or how, like is it different all programs, one thing? yeah, do different things. But the, this one and I think the majority of them are all PhD. Um in that there's not there's not really a break point you know you don't go for two years get a master's and then continue on okay um, the one that I was at um, you know it's it's generally one year of classes and then you do rotations in different labs the first year um, maybe you rotate every three months into a different lab um, and then sometimes you know it can last you know three years sometimes it could last six it all depends on you know, on how productive you are and if your professor is, uh, um, is ready. So this is the part where the, um, my academic or my, my, um, work background played a real influence. So I walked in the, the professor who I ultimately chose to, to work with. I said, look, I go, I'm not going to be here for eight years. I was like, fuck that. <laughs> yeah. Because you knew you just wanted to go out there and yeah, start making to, I money? Want, yeah, and, or, I know I wanted to like just get my degree, but I didn't 
I had heard stories over the, my first year of, you know, some people that would kind of get lost in a lab and stay there for five or six years and I'm, turn around and you're, yeah, you're 30. Like, and yeah, <laughs> so we literally had a handshake deal. I was like, if I get, and I had no idea I was making how aggressive this was, but it's if I get three or four, four first author papers, I'm out of here. And he's like, <laughs> done. And so I, d- I didn't even know though, like what you know what went into that. So what is what is a first author paper? So you, it's a publication, and the first author typically does all the work, and the last author you could have two people or you could have two hundred people, but the first person is the one who actually does physically does the work, um, and maybe writes some of it, but does all the experiments, and the last author is the leader of the lab, and they're okay. usually the ones who write the papers. And you know, write grants, you know, and 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 then submit the papers to different academic journals, you know. And so, I mean, some people go the you know, enter a PhD program and don't have any first author. Like they're in the middle of the sandwich meat is what it's called. You're like in, you know, you're two through ten, right? Uh, but it still counts as a publication. But first author means like you have done all the labor needed to to answer whatever question the paper is 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 asking so would you so that sounds like someone who is extremely ambitious to me is that true yeah so yeah i was motivated i was like look i don't want to be here for a long time but you know i mean i I want to i want good training and and the you know my my professor's like heck yeah that's more papers for for me and you're doing the heavy lifting so you know in at the time uh um uh, my girlfriend now wife, you know, she was in Georgia and I was in, you know, at UAB on my own. So, you know, there, um, I could focus hundred percent during the week, um, uh, on the, you know, on the experiment. And so I was, I was literally, you know, in the lab for, I mean, 12, 16 hours a day. Okay. Just, really? Yeah. And uh, like, what did you what did you decide to work on? Like, how did you? So the projects were kind of. I mean, the, the you never know what the project is going to where, where a project in academia is going to take you, particularly in the in the life sciences. Um, but we, um, yeah, we had a couple of assays. So these are these are experiment experimental parameters that you can test certain things. And you could say, you know, like, for example, this protein touches this protein to make X, Y, or Z happen. And you can, you know, that's your hypothesis. And you can test that in a bunch of different ways. Um, and it's funny, my, um, I kind of do this now, but my day-to-day for four of the five years I was in graduate school was to go to this coffee shop called Lucy's. And I would, like, get there at like, you know, eight or nine and I would get so freaking geeked up on caffeine. I'd probably <laughs> have like three cups of coffee. And I would go into the lab at like 10 and I would start like five experiments at the same time. <laughs> and like, it's, it's, and it helps me today because I literally was responsible for every like two minutes of the day for 12 hours. Like it's immense concentration. Could you go from you know, you're you're pipetting, you're moving, you know, liquid, or you're you're doing something for right. every two minutes of the day for for twelve hours? And you're writing notes in notebooks, or is there yeah, yeah, computers at this yeah, point? Yeah, yeah, you or, document or? everything. Yeah, that's right. And so, um, 
you have to multitask. So that's so that's what I did, you know. And and now in my in my job, I can I can talk on the phone, type, you know, text, <laughs> right. all at the same time, and like because it just you know you, that's just you just learn it. So are you alone in the lab, or do you have like a lab? Or you have like undergrads yeah, that, working with you to help you, or it all depends. Yeah, in the that? lab there were. Um, in our lab, I think there were two postdoctoral fellows, people that already had their PhD and were doing additional research to try to get an academic position. Um, and there were probably another two or three students and then a couple lab techs. And so, um, but the good thing though is that we studied um, the assays that we used. Um, a lot of them used like radioactive elements. And so you had to put you know, a, f- a film down and then the next morning you would, you would put the film in the machine and you could, you could figure out like what, you know, what the experiments meant. Right. So, um, I would get data every day, every single day, which is unusual. Like some people have, for example, like, a in cell biology, if you have an animal model and you develop like a, a mouse, like a knockout mouse, right. With a certain gene, and you could say, oh, well, this gene's really involved in this disease. And then when you actually, when you actually knock it out, it may, take, it may take a year to get the correct mice that you want. You have to validate it. You have to make sure that you know, it's what you say it is. My, my assays were totally different. Like every day, I'm like, boom, boom, boom. I would get something. I'd get an answer, right? right. So the cool thing is that for, you know, it, it wouldn't happen every day, but it would be about once a month. Once every two months, I would have a, you know, I can treat CF. I can, you know, I can, I can cure it, right? I, there's, here's a known mechanism. Here's a real experiment that could show, like, you know, an effect on the protein which causes CF. Right. And obviously, I was like, oh, for, oh, for 50. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, what's the worst thing that ever happened in the lab? That you caused, uh, <laughs> and then let um, me just just in general, like what's? Oh, I, I I was the uh, I was the person who did all the ordering. Um, I was also the person who used a ton of like hot radioactive S thirty five P thirty two all that stuff. I don't know what those are, but uh, uh, radioactive sulfur, radioactive phosphorus, okay. um, and uh, yeah, I spilled that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Our lab was hot as hell. <laughs> um, is uh, the 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 minutia of the work sounds mind numbing? Is is it? Yeah, it's. You have to really, you have to want it. You have to be internally motivated. And but, and, and what was unusual is that my whole class at you know at at, at UAB to start. Um, you know, some people went right from undergrad, and they kind of got they kind of their they kind of went even. I mean, in other words, they, their, their ambition, they weren't as aggressive, right? So they went into labs and they kind of viewed it as, you know, sort of an eight to five and they didn't, there wasn't a, a like, let's get the hell out of here or let's get an answer or let's, you know, let's finish an experiment. Um, so that's one thing I would recommend, you know, to anyone is, you know, after undergrad, but if you do start a graduate school, like to work, to figure you know, to have a, a baseline because I was massively motivated when I went in there right to finish it right and then when I you know so I would take that same drive and 
every day in the lab. Like, let's get some data. Let's get a paper. Let's get published. Let me get the hell out of here. Right. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, I mean, I, but I was also known as the, um, my, uh, my mentor always, always comment that I was exceptional at getting other reagents. So like, I'll go to all my buddies and, you know, either in my class or people that I've known, you know, and get tools like other antibodies, other, I just sort of collect other things and be able to put that in my experiment to, to say, you know, hey, look, you didn't tell me to do this project or this this experiment, but I did anyway, and here's what I got. You know, so that led to a couple of interesting findings, right? But um, like what? I don't know. Just you know, just uh, um, it would add a, an extra dimension to like a project that we work on or a publication. Okay. Right? So if you had like 10, 10 data figures on a publication that you know from one of ours, like two or three of them were things that I had kind of thought of separately. And got the tools to make that experiment happen. Gotcha. You know, but I mean, for the most part, my boss was very, a mentor is very driven to, to you know, I kind of followed what it, what the protocol that he had. So okay. it wasn't as independent. Like some PhD students, literally, they have a project and they don't see their boss for three, four months, and they just kind of flounder. Like I had daily interaction. I mean, hourly interaction. Is uh is is your mentor? Is he still teaching? Is he so still he, alive? Uh, he moved from UAB to uh, to UNC, but he's still doing the same thing. And it's funny, I see him and a lot of other people I knew at UAB want to go to the to cystic fibrosis meetings today. So I go as an as an equity analyst, and they go at, they still there as a researcher. But you know we we know the same field, right? So but from vastly different areas. What are the options generally when you finish like a program like this? Like what do you, what do yeah, people, what do people question. end up generally doing? So what was, um, there's a guy before me um, who started this uh, program. It's called Industry Roundtable. So when I was at UAB, um, the quote unquote non alternative careers is what it was called. It's kind of like the, you're like blacklisted, right? Like if you, <laughs> because the typical, the typical protocol is you do a PhD, you write a couple of good papers and then you get to know other labs across the world. And then you do a two or three year postdoc fellowship. Some people do two of those. And then you, and then you're put up somewhere for a professor, you know, assistant professor, and then it goes to associate and then goes to full professor. Okay. So when you say these labs, these are, these are school run labs. All academic, almost all academic okay. labs. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, you know, the, the, uh, interesting thing is that like, as I was, as I was going because I came from industry, I knew I didn't, I didn't want to go into academic research. So I went in, I went into a PhD program knowing that I wasn't going to be a professor. Gotcha. So that, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. I think maybe aspirationally, I wanted to maybe work at a pharma or biotech doing research on real drugs, right? Or something like that would lead to, you know, um, a contribution in some way, right? To a, to a certain disease. Um, and then, I don't know, about a third of the way through the PhD program, um, I started getting more active in this industry roundtable. And we would have like... Um, People that were patent attorneys, right? That had their got their PhD and went on to do other things. People that, you know, used to work for um, the FBI, like in governments. Or there's a lot of, you know, um, 
science consultants to law firms. Okay. Right. Or and then obviously people would come in from pharma or biotech, you know, that were in doing research or in management or something like that. So, but anything but a the whole point of it, it was like he would bring people in once a month and they would give a seminar about how they use their PhD in a non-traditional way. That's extremely helpful. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, yeah. So after, you know, a year of going, like I actually led it and and it was fun because they, you know, we had a nice budget and you can kind of run with it. So I kind of used it. I was like, well, okay, I, I want, if I want to do this, right, let's let me, bring in somebody. <laughs> like, who were like, some of the people you brought in? It can have to be names. It can be, you know, Yeah, no, do. there were people like from Big Pharma that we would bring in That's they would have some sort of UAB like history. And so they would more, more than happy to do it. And they do like, you know, one day of meetings with professors, but maybe two or three meetings with groups of students individually. And we all, the students would take them out to, to dinner, right? So, and just talk about how they got to where they were, right? What, you know, their decision process and things like that. And, you know, I think a lot of the professors kind of viewed this roundtable as, you know, like a, a nice distraction. But in the end, like, I mean, 95% of them were thinking that, you know, their student was going to go on to academic research, you know? And so, um, I had, uh, every, every PhD program, you, you have your, you have your regular meetings, right? To update on your project and your progress overall. Uh, and I had one towards the end and they knew I was active in industry, this industry roundtable, and, and knew I, I probably wasn't thinking academic research, you know, I, and, um, and I, I'd mentioned like, well, you know, maybe I can go into into some sort of finance. There was one guy um, who started Industry Roundtable who went on to become like a associate and then a, a senior analyst at a Wall Street bank covering the biotech industry. And I mentioned that, and they're like, "That's a mistake." Like it was completely—I <laughs> mean, shut it down. Like so what's they, what's the stigma on that? Why why is that why is that looked down? Is it looked down upon? Yeah, just well, you're leaving the acad. Yeah, you're leaving okay. the academy, right? You're basically throwing away your entire. And so my mentor actually said, you know, look, you have, you know, at the time I had three first author papers in excellent journals, and he's like, you could go work for whoever you wanted. And then collaborate with me. Like it was about him, not <laughs> yeah, me. Right. And I was like, yeah. That does sound amazing <laughs> for you. And so um, so it was a consensus. Like all five of my, you know, um, people on my committee were like, do not do that. Like you're throwing away a phenomenal academic track record and like great publications. And there are people like you know, very high profile schools that, you know, were, I would go to, go to scientific meetings and like, hey, you could work a, well, they were get, kind of recruiting kind of in a, in a less, you know, let's say aggressive way, but they're like, hey, we'd love to have you, you know, it'd be great. So uh, get specific with what, like what that alternative path would have been just for, cause I, I just have no clue on this stuff. Uh, on the the move side. to like a financial. Like, so if you had, if you'd have done what they wanted you to do, yeah, like yeah. where would you be now? Yeah, what, so, and what yeah. that path would have been. So I would, uh, if I had gone down the a postdoctoral fellowship, so I would have gone from UAB to anywhere. Let's say I went to you know UNC, where my where my mentor is now. Um, I would I would have graduated with a PhD, and then I would probably spend two years doing three years doing a postdoctoral fellowship on another project, right? It, 
could be the same thing. It could have been in CF. It could have been in another disease area. I don't know. Any, any sort of, um, and I'll be doing the same thing, you know, in a lab, doing experiments, you know, I'd probably take a little bit more of a leadership role and maybe writing more and, and, and kind of presenting medical, d- clinical data or scientific data in a, in a, you know, at a conference, right? Do more of that, not right. just a poster session. And then I would probably repeat that, do another postdoc, you know, and then I would, you know, I would put myself up for an academic, for a professorship. So if I had gone down the traditional route, I would, you know, and I were here in Atlanta, I would be at Emory or somewhere tech, you know, I would be, you know, a professor with my own lab and students and things like that. And I have to teach, you know, and, and, um, that's Did, fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Like it just yeah. wasn't for me, right? Did you end up teaching at all, like doing TA stuff? I mean, I'm sure you did, or no? Maybe not. Yeah, no, I did a little, um, a little bit. Uh, it, for a PhD student, it depends on the school. Like a pure research school, you don't have as many uh, undergrads that um, that you have to teach. It, it's very, it's really variable though. So um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't have a, a heavy teaching burden. Um, but I love though talking. I love talking to other students though about uh, like non-academic careers. Like, what do you what do you want to do? You right. Know, what do you? And uh, one guy, I I um I had to uh, I was interviewed by the FBI, and he actually went to go work as an agent, <laughs> and it was bizarro. It was a complete like mind melt. Like before I knew it, I was admitting that he used to drink heavily and like, <laughs> stuff that you would never say about a friend of yours. Right. Like, <laughs> I've had to do a couple of background checks like that all yeah. I got very nervous. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like, kind of blow their life. This yeah. Is what yeah. Exactly. They want to do and like, yeah. Uh, all right. So you're doing the roundtable. You're getting closer. What is? I imagine there's like one big long project at the end that is your thing, right? That yeah. is your PhD. What was yours on? Was so ours was on. Uh, and it's going to sound really. I'm not going to nerd out, but the the protein which is defective in a cystic fibrosis patient, it doesn't reach the surface of a cell, and so and if it did, then you wouldn't have CF. And so we study the decisions, like it does, does the protein when it's being made, is it folded correctly? Is it degraded incorrectly? Like what are the, what are the decisions between getting to the proper place and what happens in a disease state, right? And so, um, you know, we had worked on a number of different mechanisms. Um, one of them called the, the, the mechanism of degradation is called ubiquitin proteasome, the mechanism of folding, um, it's there are multiple ones, but they're through um, various uh, chaperone proteins that help massage the the protein to get into the right the right place. And so, you know, I had I had you know three publications that kind of talked about each aspect of that, um, and it's it's a huge accomplishment. I mean, you know, I look at one of them now, and one figure took me six months to do the experiment. I did the experiment like a dozen times. You know, and just to make sure that it's optimal and you change, you tweak each thing to try to make sure that the answer is reproducible, right? Right. So that part was was fun and all, but, you know, I would, I kind of noticed over the course of my graduate career that I would go to like, you know, like cocktail parties and all people would talk about is their 
is their protein or their their mechanism. Right. And I was like, I'm like, uh, how about the Braves? So like, I, you know, <laughs> nobody really was like, <laughs> they're one dimensional. And so I was like, yeah. I really didn't. And I saw a lot of the professors, like they had. They're, some of their family lives were pretty challenged, you know. And I'm like, if you if you got to be committed, like this is what people are committed to, you know. And, and right. I just didn't. I mean, I'm a relatively social person, so I didn't <laughs> really. It wasn't. It wasn't for me. And so that yeah. that was one of the sort of switches that went off. Is that like maybe from a like personal perspective, I wouldn't I wouldn't be happy with an academic career. And then along the way, in the background of all of this, this was the late 90s, um, and the sequencing of the human genome was happening. And this was the tech bubble, right? Right. So in the biotech, the biotech bubble, which is also happening at the same time of the tech bubble, because of the human genome project, um, I was getting like calls from family and friends. So like, what do you think of this company? What do you think of this, you know, this, you know, um, drug or I had no idea. Right. right. So on the side, I was kind of checking some of this stuff out. Yeah. Right. Um, and I didn't mention this before, but literally as my graduate career was ending, I started a dot com. Did you? Yeah. Outstanding. So it was called BioShares. So it's funny. Um, uh, the goal was to be a, was to be a newsletter for individual investors, right? And what it did was it explained the science behind some of the stuff in development. So what is gene therapy? What, you know, and, and or what is, you know, uh, a monoclonal antibody and how is it different than a polyclonal and how does that, what does that mean to drug development? Or, you know, what is a certain disease pathway? And so, um, and the goal was to sort of launch this and have like a subscription kind of base model, right? And so, um, but I did everything on my own. Like I learned HTML on my own. I programmed this website. I drew all these figures. Oh my gosh. I did a lot of the writing. And then um, I enlisted the help of maybe like half a dozen uh, graduate students to write. And so we would say we'd have these sort of backgrounders to the industry and then we'd write on companies we would say like amgen which is a big biotech company you know we would have a like a highlight of what what are the drug what are the drugs that they have currently on the market what's in development what do we think of the ones in development and then we would link like link to the financials i had no idea about any of the financials i mean i had taken maybe a couple of accounting courses but like and so but the students work for free and I was like, "Look, I, you put this on your resume. Like, I can't give you, I can't give you anything other right. than like, you know, resume builder." Um, and then we we launched it. I mean, isn't that it's pretty awesome. similar to what you're doing? It's now? exactly <laughs> what I do I now. <laughs> That's what I thought. So, did you? I didn't know what the term "sell side research" was, but I was doing it as a graduate student in my second year. That's am- so. Did you? <laughs> That's amazing. By the way, I love that. So did you know that like there were people out there already doing this like for no, you know, like big no banks and stuff no like that? No idea. <laughs> no idea. It wasn't. I mean, and I was like, wow, the the SEC actually like I would read 10Ks and Qs, which are, you know, annual reports and quarterly reports from public companies. And that's where we get a lot of our information. And 
we would just kind of give opinion on that. And, you know, of course, like I, I had to legal up, right. Like I, you know, had a bunch of disclaimers at the end, you know, and, right. and, uh, um, but I, I launched everything at the same time that I was kind of starting my thesis, right. To, to write a, the book that basically the thesis was easy. Like I just stapled together the three or four papers and then wrote kind of a intro. Oh, that's conclusion. cool and smart. But the, but I was more interested in like the the website. Yeah. Did you um, like running a company? Well, I did. Was it? We didn't. It wasn't even a company. I mean, we. I you know, I got a website. We launched it. You know, we we had enough content, um, and uh, um, I was literally in the process of activating it to like to start the subscription model, right? To say like to to be able to pay for it, and. Um, and that's when I started to look for for jobs on Wall Street, and so they and I would I would call these people in New York. They're like, "What? What, what the hell? Like, you know, what do you know about any of this?" And I and I said, "Check out my website." And they would call me like an hour later, like, "When can you come up?" No way. So it was it had nothing to do with the success of the website. It had everything to do with the with the marketing of myself. That was it. That and did you know? I mean, you didn't think that going in, right? No, but it was. I mean, it happened like five times. Like, well, what do you know about equity research? What do you know about, you know? I mean, these are all different types of jobs in in uh, in the financial industry. So, buy side, which means actual investors, you know, like fidelities of the world, like people who actually run clients' money sell side research, which is what I do now, which is you publish and you recommend stuff, but you don't actually make the investment, right? Um, and then there's, you know, investment banking, M&A, like every f- private equity, every facet, you know, of finance, I kind of looked at a whole list of stuff and I just started like sitting out on the flyer, like all this stuff, you know, my, my trick was, um, if it doesn't work now, but I would, I would, one day you know, I'd FedEx or do a you know two day my resume, but I'd have return receipt, so like I would knew when someone actually opened it. So it would go to like the direct person that you know is going to do the hiring, and they would have to physically open the the you know UPS right, or the, FedEx. Rip it open, yeah, yeah, and like look at it, and then I would like email them like, did you get it? You know, and and it had a it had a couple hits, but then that was the. Those are the people that said, well, you know, what on earth do you know about equity research? And check out my website. And you're able to show me that. <laughs> that is amazing. Golly, is that is that duplicable? Du- duplicable. Y'all know what I mean? I can't yeah, say that I word. Yeah, I, I mean, it is. It just it shows you, though, that you're, that you're committed. I think that's the thing. Like, I, I see a ton of resumes, like, every week for people, people now, and but they're – it's just same. Like you have to show you're interested in bridging another industry, you know. So if someone says, "I went out of my way to start a website and have students write for it and launch it," it means that like you're not just some scientist who wasn't successful in academia and wanted as an alternative to go do something else. Oh, right? Uh, right. And that might be the very first thought, given yeah. where more most people go yeah. in that situation. I mean, I did one interview where I, we, I flew all the way up there to New York um, from, you know, from Atlanta. And it was like a one-hour interview, and I'd pay all this stuff out of pocket. And I'm competing with people who live in New York, right? 
who could just walk down the street and do the same interview. And as I'm interviewing, they're like, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. This job's already been filled. And I'm like, (laughs) I dropped like two grand on like, you know, (laughs) hotel, like like air. I'm like, what? (laughs) So so there was one gentleman who came to the round table who was doing something similar to you. Uh, what were the other options, I guess, besides, or when did you, how did you decide on the Wall Street kind of angle of what to do and what was like second place or what were the other things that you were interested in? Um, I think that I, I thought for sure, like if I wanted to leverage my academic career and, and do something in, in finance and, um, it was, there's only one Wall Street, you know, so I couldn't. I mean, I, I know now, obviously, I, you could have gone to Boston or San Fran. There's a number of areas that have a financial community, you know, that it's focused on healthcare or, or therapeutics. Um, but at the time, though, I was like, that it's it's kind of New York or bust, yeah. you know? And so, um, I mean, you know, my wife and I moved to New York with, I think we had six boxes and four uh, suitcases and my parents had literally taken duct tape and wrapped them around the boxes and the one-way ticket and I mean, keep in mind like you know she had she hadn't had a job yet uh, and didn't get one yet and she got one when she was like a month after um, but the the hit I mean my parents were saying mistake what are you doing <laughs> my five out of five people on my committee mistake what are you doing my entire, like, all my friends, like, what the hell? Right. There's only been one person and that guy who started the roundtable who was literally on Wall Street. And I went to interview with him, and he told me, this job's too hard. You can't do it. He wasn't wow. even supportive. He was not even supportive of me going, you know. <laughs> so not not that just, like, the job's too hard, nobody can do Don't it. Don't do but it. But the job's yeah. too hard, you specifically, Jeff Meacham, That's are not correct. able to do this. That's correct. <laughs> What did he see in you to make him so positive? I have no idea. I mean, I remember interviewing with him and his boss, and um, and I'm sitting there in the interview, and the guy is like talking on the phone and also trying to interview me, and he's I mean, he gave me like ten minutes, and and the guy that I knew is like, yeah, he's like, sorry, it's just you know, we're and so he does, we're man, busy. so busy, we're Wall Street, yeah, yeah, we're busy, so you know, I don't think this is for you. What in the world? So I didn't. I didn't have a lot of like you know. I mean, I finally got a job, and when we moved there, it was like, you know, how long did it take to actually get a job from the the whole process? Um, And what are you doing in the meantime to to pay for? So I uh, yeah. So I when I officially graduated, and this was you know, so I got married a year before I graduated. So and then. did my you wife live Betsy, together then in Birmingham or no? Um, we only lived together one year of the five or so that we were dating because of the the um, different cities, right? Yeah. So um, she was in Athens uh, and a little bit in Atlanta, and I was mostly in Birmingham. Um, and so the last year, though, we lived together in, in Birmingham. So, um, so, yeah, that was kind of the – I wouldn't call it – the high point. So I graduate, <laughs> she graduates, we move back to Atlanta, like in my parents' basement. 
and I'm looking for a job. Oh my, my parents were super supportive, but they were like, hey, this phone bill uh, was 100 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. And then at the time, my boss, uh, my mentor had, <laughs> bless me. you, had cut me off, like no more stipend, no nothing. Oh, wow. And so I was doing a lot of the, you know, I, was, I was applying to these places and talking to people and trying to make something happen after I graduated. Um, and something was, I knew it was close because I had a bunch of, like, I had a good hit rate, I think, because of the website. Right. right? Um, and so the, um, yeah, I, I went to, um, so the first job I took was at UBS, and uh, I did a, a whole round of interviews. And turns out, at the time, the um, genomics was all the rage, early-stage biotech and genomics. Uh, so people were sequencing the human genome and trying to figure out, like, what drugs you can make from that. Literally, it took fifteen, ten or fifteen years after that project was finished, so you kind of learn the fruits of it. Really, it took a long time. Um, but uh, um, at the time, though, everyone thought it would be like a year away, right? And so um, at UBS, they had uh, one major um, biotech person, and their job um, was to, and they had six sort of PhDs. And their job was to literally write research on companies, and then you would get banking business from that. The companies would raise capital through the firm. Uh, and I happened to uh, um, work for an analyst who happened to also cover um, devices and and medical devices, um, and then also some uh, healthcare services like lab service companies. And I was kind of the science geek on her team. Like okay. the science nerd, he would also do genomics. So I helped her sort of come up to speed on genomics. Um, but then over the course of like the next couple of years, like everyone uh, was canned, and and on the for the the work for the main guy, and because I wasn't with the main guy, um, uh, um, I kind of I I was you know kind of got lucky. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. So what did I learned I learned, literally learned on the job like the financial modeling balance sheet income statement cash flow how to build a, a revenue model for a drug like how do you you know how do you market or how do you model out like the penetration rates for a drug and what the price is and what the peak potential is and all that stuff like on the fly is anybody teaching you this or are you just looking at materials and trying to figure this out nobody taught me like they here they're like here's a model from another company like use this as a background and your job just so i make sure i'm within the audience as well so your job is to analyze these different companies and the different drugs that they have coming out correct and to determine whether they are something that somebody should invest in or not exactly right yep boom buy sell hold <laughs> you pass that's the podcast folks um <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, again, very similar to what you were going to do with your own company. Yeah. Uh, so, what's an average day like? I, I, it's just so foreign to me. Like, give me your, give me a typical busy Tuesday, both with in your industry and then like, you know, are you, you're a newlywed. Yeah. So just walk me through that. As an so, so you, so when you're hired you know, on the job, so that I did interview for uh, a job in M and A. Uh, in private equity. Mergers and acquisitions, yep. right? Okay. And private equity. And I decided that the sell side probably was the right place to be because I didn't have any actual 
I wasn't rec- making a recommendation of clients' money. Like you know, I was I was we're just writing a we're just writing basically. We re- we research companies, but I wasn't investing active money. So I figured if I didn't I didn't know anything about Wall Street, and I immediately went in and lost money like it would be it right and, so, and that was the thought process behind it like yeah that was one of the things this yeah. i know i can do because i right. don't have to be responsible for that other part right because that, that's yeah. that's the buy side so the buy side is the actual investors who put you know real who buy and sell the stocks right, right? and the sell side sort of will will perform the background research and have a dialogue you know so that's pretty much what i do is have a, you know a dialogue and that's the the day-to-day is that uh, as an associate, um, you get in early. You you watch the news. What like, times early? Get get as specific as you can with me, and I'll I'll rush you forward. If I'd it's... probably say seven seven thirty something okay. like that, right? Um, and you will call watch the tape. You basically watch the the, the news that comes out. So, a, a an analyst's coverage universe are literally all the stocks that they cover. So I currently cover well, almost thirty. Okay. Uh, the analyst that I work for, you know, covered, you know, maybe 20 or so. Uh, but I was responsible for, you know, let's say five of, of her 20. So there's like three tiers to like the operation kind of thing? Yeah. The, the main, the senior analyst is the one who is, their name's on top of every report and the associates are the ones that are underneath, right? So um, news would come out that directly was on your companies that you're responsible for, or even peripheral companies that maybe you don't cover, but are related. Right. So, um, you know, and if something hit, you know, let's say if a, if a, a, a drug achieved an endpoint or like some data came out on a clinical trial, we'd have to write it up. You know, this drug looks better or worse than expectations. It looks like it's, it's still risky. It's not going to, it's not going to even advance in the pipeline. It won't go from phase one to phase two. It's, it was a flop or it was a massive success or somewhere in between. Okay. Right? So um, the morning was spent like reacting to news and writing. And then um, a lot of it, you're just sitting in a cube, you know, and you're just kind of glued to your, you know, to your computer. Um, and meanwhile, like you watch the stocks trade. So that's the other piece is that once the other piece is that once the market opens at nine thirty. You know, if a stock that you cover for whatever reason is down like you know twenty percent, like you're something's you're missing something. Right? <laughs> right. Something's going on, and there's no news. Like there's really something going on. So you'd have to interact with the traders, right? You have to interact with salespeople in right? your own firm, right? My own firm. Okay, and then um, you know the the buy side clients would call you directly. You know, if uh, if if you had. If you had a bit of research, you would they would call you. But if if something was going on that was sort of not normal, they would call you. Right. And so, uh, as a as a sort of associate, as kind of a junior on the team, like you're the you're the engine, right? You you do the model, financial models, Excel models. You do all the writing. You write the reports, right? Whether it's just a one page report or like a fifty page initiation of coverage is what it's called. So you're if you add a new stock to your coverage universe, you have to write a big, lengthy report that talks about you know, the, you know, the whole thing: investment thesis, you know, um, company background, all the details on the the stuff in the pipeline, and what you think on valuation as a stock, overvalued, undervalued, and why, right? Okay. So, um, and so that's that's kind of the the 
the day to day, but you know the the writing piece. You have to learn to write for a financial audience. Like I, you know, there that didn't take me too long. Like I sort of flipped that switch from a pure academics to uh, uh, writing to financial audience, and it's just a lot tighter, you know. And and um, but the modeling piece was brand new. Like I hadn't done a lot of Excel work, so I, I had to really come up to, and that's many late nights like coming up the curve on that i believe you how did you how did you teach yourself you know it's just a tri- it was just trial and error like the i would not you know the um i just looked at model after model and just talked to people around me and kind of you know and kind of learned and i didn't really have anyone to kind of say here's what you should do because because the analyst that I worked for that wasn't her forte like genomics wasn't really her forte at all okay so I was sort of giving her new information and she said sure sounds good but she had no science background didn't really know you know whether I was you know legit or not <laughs> yeah, right exactly <laughs> uh, can you think of any big wins or big losses in this part of your career no just getting to where I was. Um, I went from a pretty measly like stipend to a, a you know a, a decent step up as a junior, but you know cost of living in New York is not trivial. So I, at the time, you know it would we were still getting to know. We moved up to the up. We were first of the Upper East Side, still getting to know the entire city. Yeah, and and as prom- I promised Betsy, I promised my wife three years in New York. We were ultimately there like nine. That, but, but that was the first arrangement. Was that was the first arrangement? Like only three years, and then and so then. So what did you think was going to happen at the end of the three <laughs> years? Be one job, or were you just? I thought I was going to come back to the southeast and and do something. Right. Okay. You know, but um, but yeah, I mean, and and uh, she was an attorney, so she spent a lot of time uh, in in patent litigation. She spent a lot of time in the office. I mean, lawyers, you know, are paid by the hour the longer you work the more you get paid or the more the firm gets paid there's certainly your expectations of how many hours you will be working (laughs) right um so um the uh so the first couple years we were sort of getting to know the city um but so we were there in late 2000 and then within the in under a year 9-11 happened right so that immediately sent obviously you know the the market into like a couple of years of, you know, recession, decline. At the same time, like literally the tech bubble was bursting and, and, right. the, geno- and the genomics and biotech bubble went along with that, right? So, you know, I wrote these initiation reports on companies that, you know, like with $200, $300 price targets and the stocks were like at 10 Right, like a year later, right? So Good gravy. It was a horrific. I mean, every day was a horrific contraction, you know. And and um, but where were you on nine eleven? What? So we um, so uh, both of us worked in Midtown. Um, I was near um, Rockefeller Center, uh, and she was um, about the same uh, other side of Park. About uh, basically, you know. Um, Midtown East and Midtown West. Um, and it's interesting when I walked in that day, you know, they, I saw the, they, they had on all the TVs on the research floor, like the, you know, the vision of the plane and the smoke. And, um, and then I saw, I think I saw the second one hit. I was like, what the hell? God, I did too, on TV. And, um, 
and then we're all kind of talking and this just you know, I mean it's, it's only I don't know maybe less than an hour later where the f- building collapsed right so literally right after the building collapsed they said you're perfectly safe here like don't you know don't worry and I'm like I'm getting the fuck out of here <laughs> yeah <laughs> because I was thinking like at the time okay you hit like a you know there's a you know a known landmark in New York like isn't Rock Center a known landmark I work across the street from it right so like I got the hell out of there yeah and you know um, picked up picked up Betsy and they told her the same thing like you're you know you're safe in this building and so we just walked back home to the you know upper east and we lived right by Central Park and I'm like well my rationale was that what can you do to Central Park right there's nothing to hit right Right, it's yeah there's no landmark it's just the grass right? (laughs) right 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 nothing to knock down so um but it was surreal I mean watching all the people come walk up from downtown was just surreal and the the sad part was that like when we um the the church that was on our street it was a 89th um was a pretty well-known church i think the kennedys had some sort of connection there and um literally three times a day for a month i heard bagpipes and like services oh wow and to this day, like I still, I still don't like listening to bagpipes. I mean, it's yeah, I imagine you can hear it in my voice. It's still like it's just not just a daily yeah. reminder. So that, but it, the uh, I think the um, that definitely sent us back a little bit in terms of like our my. I mean, sh- she was doing phenomenally well at the law firm. Like I was still, you know, a, a junior guy in the team and kind of learning the ropes, right? Um, and then after two years of working for an analyst that, you know, um, was pretty well respected, um, one of, uh, um, one of her friends had joined, uh, UBS and she was the number one ranked biotech person. Her friend. Her friend. Okay. And so I instantly, when I heard this chatter about, you know, this analyst, her name was Merov Hovov. I've worked for two, two women on wall street and both of them were, were Jewish women who beat the crap out of me like <laughs> work ethic wise you yeah. know so um but i was like yeah i want to can i can i do that and uh, i you know it's a little bit of a you know a, of a hem and a hawing but ultimately that happened and so so you're able to transfer who you were working transfer under? after two years of working for someone as a genomics junior i worked for as a biotech junior at for this other very high profile analyst and okay there were eight people on her team it was a massive team and you know there it was it's but the the uh the message though was like really it's a lot of hours i mean i didn't tell you this story in the beginning but like when i first joined ubs to work for the um uh the analyst covering genomics uh you know those big um uh desk calendars like yeah. the big you know i don't know the they're like two feet by three feet or something like that yeah so we laid one out for December, January, and February, and she crossed out Christmas and New Year's Day, and she said, "Let's get to work." And like, yeah. I was like, "What?" <laughs> and and so we laid out like you know something to do every day, um, including like I and that was that year. I think we we flew back home Christmas Day. 
you know, mm-hmm. and like so it this it was so expectations were laid clear pretty pretty yeah quickly. very clear you mm-hmm. know and it's funny I, I I'm still a little bit old school like I still carry like a paper calendar that I I but it's really visually for me I can see like every it, like but just you know, you look at one entire month you can lay out like you can plan the month right I don't get that same you know look and feel an electronic calendar I get that so, um. But to go work for the number one ranked person was was a was a huge upgrade. I mean, it was upgrade from a visibility standpoint. Like I, I mean, people were clients were calling me. Everyone wanted to know what I what I knew because I was the PhD on the team versus I was you know working at a, a a team that a little bit lower profile, but not as much you know wasn't pure biotech. So what made this what made this woman your boss so good? Why was she, why was she the number one ranked person in this doing this? It's funny, we don't um the uh so the financial models, the Excel models. Um it sounds kind of bad, but they they were they were mostly plugs, meaning that like you just put the number in. You look at a growth rate, right? Mm-hmm. If a company sells 100 million dollars of drug you put in for the next quarter a hundred million plus three percent, right? Because that's just normal growth. Why? Yeah. Or but why not? Because we don't. Why know. not? Right. Yeah. And um, now though, what I do and what you're supposed to do is build <laughs> a how many new patients come on to drug, what's their what's the price per month, what's the discount on that price, right? How long are they on it? Like it's a the difference between a you know a. 200 line or 200 row Excel build yeah. to get to one number versus just plugging in the one number. <laughs> yeah, right. And okay. I was like, this is, but she was highly ranked, but the, the stunning part, and this was amazing to me. So when the companies would report earnings, right? So quarterly, every quarter they would report, you know, and oh, sales of this drug were X, you know, sales of another drug were Y, you know, and you kind of, Put out the income statement, kind of yeah. plays it out, um, and so she would say, you know, well, you know, you make the changes, and then and then show them all to me, okay. And so I would do that, and so I'd go in her office, and she would tweak the model. She would say, well, you know, usually first quarter is not good for them, but second quarter is, and so she would just sort of make her amendments to the model. Right? This was what made her so good. Quarter after quarter after quarter, right on the fucking money right on the money i mean not like within a within a million dollars of a 300 million dollar drug yeah like just good instincts right very good instincts about so what did you learn from her so um i learned you can get you learn you can get away with if you can if you can bs you can get away with a lot, right? <laughs> All right. So if you if you can talk about what the basis of your change is and clients would buy it, then that's fine, right? And you're right. Right. Yeah. I also learned that you, as long as you had conviction, as long as you had extreme conviction, like you, you couldn't, you would agree to disagree. But you can't be, you know, you can't be wishy-washy. So... I'll give you an example. She, we covered a company called Genentech that was later sold to uh, uh, to Roche for the the piece of their business that that Roche didn't own. They 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 bought the rest of it, right? Um, 
And the other big company in biotech was Amgen. And so um, Genentech had data on a clinical trial for a cancer drug that literally sent the stock went up like it doubled in a day. Um, it went from like 15 billion market value to like 30 and then to, and then to 50. And she, and it, there's a couple of guys that I work with really closely in the little cubes. And, and she said in three years, Genentech's going to cross Amgen in market value. And like, I was like, whatever. And like something happened that day where I remembered that day. Right. I remember like, maybe it was like, you know, near my birthday or near something. And I'm not kidding you. To the day, (laughs) to the day that happened three years later. And the reason reason I remember is because the guy that I worked in in the, the guy in the queue behind me told me, Hey, look, Look at this! Isn't this weird that like the cap now has market cap has eclipsed? And I was like, oh, I go wait, what's today? And like, <laughs> I, so but and she had no basis for that, but yet she would stand in front of the Salesforce and have you know dozens of client meetings and would have high conviction in her ideas. Like you gotta buy the stock, and here's why, and here's why it's better than these other three, and. You just you can't really waver, golly. But and she's right too. I mean, that's so, the thing. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's easy not to. I mean, I think it's easier not to waver when you when you think you're right. Right. Um, I mean, in our day to day research, you know, as a as a senior analyst now, like I do, we do dozens of physician calls. I think we did one in like two years. I mean, they're just not. You know, it was. She just knew management teams. That's the other thing. Like she knew the management team really well, and so she would be able to the management team at the pharmaceutical company. Uh, that's right, at the pharmaceutical or biotech company, You'd be able to translate their their perspective every quarter or every time you had a call with them. Like she could read between the lines. That's right. So it's about direction. Like so, she she would say, "This is this is, sounds like they're going to be better on this, but worse on that," and she'd be able to read between the lines. Uh, you know. Uh, you don't have to get the number spot on, although she did a lot, but she got the direction, which is really important. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah. The actual number may not be as important as, is it going up or down? That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, so what made you decide to leave UBS? Because eventually you did, right? So I... Um, okay, well, <laughs> sorry, I'm all yeah, over yeah. the place here, and I do this a lot. So what happened at the end of three years? So are the, you still at UBS now? Yeah, it was about uh, about three and change. Um, I would, you know, I I knew I could do the job on the sell side. I knew I can be a senior analyst, um, but there, you know, a lot of people that I got to know on the buy side were working for hedge funds, and this was, you know, when the SAC, you know, was like really, you know, the Steve Cohen, the famous hedge fund guy, like really was coming into his own then. Uh, so I talked to a bunch of you know hedge funds and try to get you know. So what do you mean? Just because I'm not on the on the so on the buy side. You mean side, like they're making a ton of money? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So yeah. we want to explore that option also. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So the a jump to the buy side. So the buy side would include like a mutual fund, or a pension fund, or a hedge fund. There's lots of hedge funds obviously in New York. Uh, so they would you know stocks would be volatile. They'd go long, short. You know, you you name it. Uh, so yeah, I mean we I would. I talked to some of them. I thought that was kind of an interesting angle. Um, and then um, someone said, oh, there's a, you know, there's a, a, a small cap biotech. So I'd covered mostly 
small cap, which is, you know, small, smaller value companies, I don't know, a okay. couple billion in value. We also covered some large cap, which are, you know, 50 billion, like really big companies. Um, but there's a small cap job open at, um, at JP Morgan. And I was like, okay. And so I went and interviewed there and they liked the pedigree because I, A, I had a PhD and B, I worked for the number one person for a couple of years. Uh, and C, I, because of her, I had enough visibility with clients where there people that called in and said, you know, and threw kind of threw my name in the ring, right? Okay. Um, and this is for a job. Is this for doing her job? No, no. I mean, her, similar job, different bank. Correct. But yeah. like, but similar job is like you're, uh, this is a promotion. This is correct. Directing this unit. Yes. I would, I would account. gone from an associate, you know, analyst, you know, or associate director, like a junior person on a team to being the person, the senior analyst. Gotcha. Right? Um, now, did Betsy remember the whole three years thing? Did y'all have a discussion? And yeah, yeah, yeah. It was uh, it was tough because it, it it there's ups and downs, but I felt like I was I would I would write stuff um, and send to the team when I was on the you know at UBS the the final couple years like just insights from companies and clients, and I would just constantly like send them data points. And I'd hear the person who kind of was her right-hand man talk to clients with my data points. But he would kind of screw it up, though. Like, he would, like, not exactly, like, get the messaging right. Right. And it was kind of depressing because I was, like, you know, I, I was, like, still the engine of the team and I wasn't really leading it. But I thought I could – I was pretty confident that I could, you know, that I could lead it. Yeah. Um, and so um, – so in this job at JPM, and at the time, JP Morgan was ranked, the ranking of their research department, like how they place with institutional investors, so the buy side, right? They were like they were like nine or ten, right? So it wasn't, um, it it wasn't the re, the premier research spot, right? Okay. Um. So so I got the job, and um, I it's funny, um, it was closer to Betsy's office on the east side. So I walk across um, town and we meet. Uh, I I think it's near there. There's a, it's the mid fifties. There's a, a building that has a glass atrium. And it was raining. I had such a like the past year had been so. It'd been a struggle because I was like wanting to kind of move on, but the economy was declining. The stocks were declining. You know everything was kind of thrown in my face and then I finally got the job and so I saw her and I was literally like Shawshank like I was my <laughs> hands up in the air in the rain and I felt like that right I felt like right, that. right right I felt like Annie Dufresne and so um I literally walked out of UBS and walked right into the job at JP Morgan like the next day no way yeah so I was like just ready to rock and roll I mean like fired up right so then hired a you know hired a, a junior my first person to ever worked for me um, and she was stellar we went from we went from zero companies to nine in like in like six months so a ton of writing right and I had gotten the introduction to big money investors high profile uh, clients. Because I went, I went marketing. I went to do meetings with the guy who was the big cap biotech person, who's still a good friend of mine. But he was showing me, you know, the um, the uh, 
kind of how to run a meeting and like kind of the nuts and bolts of the job, like the softer skills, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Um, but well, my let's, first, let's not leave that just yet. So what, yeah. what is your advice and guidance to somebody who has to, to run a meeting? I know it may be different from, you know, you have probably specific things you're doing in your industry, but what would be translatable? What did you learn that? Yeah, that it's a good, so I didn't like, I didn't really like his style, although I kind of learned different styles. Um, I feel like that's the, probably one of the best things that I do as an analyst now is there are different styles of running uh, an investor meeting. You can be the teacher. So you can talk 90% of the time um, and get your ideas across. Or you can have a dialogue. And so I do the dialogue. So I just – I ask them questions, right? Well, what – you know, what's important to you? Like, right. well, why – what did you think of this? Oh, here's what I thought. Right, and then you'd also you also have to throw in um, proprietary stuff, right? So you can never, I mean, you can never give like a ten minute answer. Like I just think like I think like a Twitter, like I three sentences or less. Yeah. Right, and then. But it's got to be proprietary. It's but it's also got to be memorable though. And by proprietary, I mean this is stuff that you've come up with on your own. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Like I talked to a physician and learned X, Y, or Z about a drug, or we did a survey of you know fifty people and we learned this is the stuff that we've learned. Okay. You know, and um, and I also um, I, you know, I don't really crap on my competitors during a meeting, but like that's one thing that I guess people know of me is that I'm like really intensely competitive, like, <laughs> yeah. and so. And I think I think that's that's actually a somewhat unusual characteristic. Like most people, you know, in in my role as a sell site analyst, kind of look at themselves like they cover one one spectrum, right? So there there's an analyst for for hospitals, there's an or, or healthcare services, there's an analyst for med devices, but there's also an analyst for internet, there's an analyst for oil services, there's an analyst for you know. Um, consumer right like you know um there's a beverage analyst like you cover like 50 different industries right right um and most people you know kind of fulfill like they they want to be the best they can be but like i i i learned this and this is i think it's a jp morgan thing like i i did you know the analysts would all meet occasionally with jamie diamond and my favorite quote from him was like literally he said like with my with my last dying breath I'll have my foot on my competitor's throat. Like, <laughs> really? <laughs> and like so every day you wake up every day like wanting to kick ass. And what I still feel like that so this was obviously a, a rally meeting but like he just expound it, on that please. <laughs> well because he I mean at the time when I when I first joined this was like 04 they um the uh, we weren't ranked highly in research, and you know there there's a bunch of mergers that happened to form JPM. They bought you know Chase and Chemical Bank and it, Bank One, and there was a, a whole. It was kind of a mess, right? There was a number of different um, banks that that formed what we now as JP Morgan, but but Jamie came from the Bank One side, and which was a, a retail like consumer bank, and not really an, an investment bank with like research and investment banking and there's more deposits right okay so like 
So, but he came and just had a real kind of tenaciousness to him and very like forget the diplomatic, you know, very political, like just right, like we have to kick ass. No way. All right. And so, um, I already already had like a little bit of a, you know, like a competitive streak when I started, like a real urgency to what I did. And uh, um, that like just fired me up. Like, and so, (laughs) and so our like literally the first like 10 reports that we had written, the companies that we cover, right, went from zero to 10. Yeah. Um, 10 out of 10 stocks worked. Like in the first, like say three to six months, like our our sales went down, our buys went up, and our equal weights or neutrals were flat. And like the the guy who was our healthcare spe- trader, he's like, "You need a tracksuit when you come down here." He's like, "Holy shit!" He's like, "Cause and we were aggressive with the, you know with the thesis and like the companies that were." We were negative on, like I mean, it was. But we <laughs> had conv- we had conviction though, right? So you yeah. have to have conviction. Um, and uh, so that was a couple years, right, of doing that. And then the guy for two years, and the guy who the larger cap guy who I used to do some meetings with. Um, I mean, he was a pretty popular guy, but he was a lot later in his career, and so come to find out, people like increasingly over two years, like they would do meetings to kind of hear my, my stocks and not his. I found that out after a couple, a couple of years after, but, um, but he, he taught me a lot. But then when he left, you know, the head of research said, do you want to cover like larger caps? And I was like, hell yeah, I do. So we went from 10 to like 35, which is an extraordinary number of, of companies to follow. Because think about this, like every day there's like, two or three press releases that come, you have to deal with news and stocks are flying. Like every day there's some, something's going something's on with going one on. of these companies. That's right. Or the industry that is going to affect that company. That's right. And so I, but I inherited his associates. So I went from one or two to like five, right. That you're now managing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so I wasn't used to that. So, you know, I had to <clears throat> step back and figure out a way to be, streamline organization wise do you like managing people i do yeah i mean it's um i have a good tree is what is what they call it so there's tons of people that work for me that are my competitors that are in vc private equity that are in the corporate side like they're you're the the belichick of the biotech uh, (laughs) research like i um but i i do i mean i i it gets um but I have a pretty strict criteria. Like I don't, I, I've I've hired a lot of blowups. Like I hired a guy who, for six months, we recruited out of the FDA. Like so, he was a PhD, really good dude. Um, decided wanted to go into Wall Street, and um, and so I, um, you know, had many meetings with him. And so we, we used to call him FDA. It was funny, and he looked like he was a Fed. Um. Always had like a black suit on, like real tall, like dark glasses, you know. Um, and uh, um, and he was he he didn't pass his securities exams. He took it twice, like the the minimum requirement to be on a in, okay. in a year. And so like that, I mean, he, he was a he was a decent associate, but like failed his the basic requirements. And so 
for people that you take, you try to, so, and we, we had to let him go. And I think he's now he's a successful banker, but we had to, you take people out of a tr- non-traditional role and put them in a role. And it's most of the time they're not successful. So I always, I hire people like that are at least one year into the seat, like have been there, done that for another analyst, even if they've learned bad habits, but I don't have to train them to write, to model Oh, that's interesting. You know? Yeah. So you don't reinvent the wheel, you know, with a lot of folks. What um, else do you look for in somebody you're going to hire? You know, I, I think just ambition. There's a guy that I hired who now is, he's many years on the on the buy side and successful buy sider. Um, he, uh, you know, this is actually my second associate. So when I was at JP Morgan, so the, the first one uh, was a rock star, ran on, went on later to do, uh, to do private equity. Um, the second guy though, um, so you know, I even knew like maybe 10 people, you know, and you get a lot of high profile, you know, uh, resumes. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a lowly state school guy as they say. So right. a lot of Ivy league resumes and, um, and after seeing these, they're, they're not that differentiated, right? So maybe they have a, a advanced degree like an MBA or a PhD, or maybe they don't. But one guy said, like, I'll sleep on my floor. I'll sleep on your floor to to get the job done. And I was like, and HR, I said, you're hired. I literally, like, that's it. Like, no shit. HR's like, you can't do that. Like, you can't just say, like, I'm like, this is the guy. This is the guy I want. <laughs> not exactly so, putting, uh, putting HR in a great negotiating right. position. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, um, I'd say just it's hard to it's hard to measure like pure drive, but like that's the rule number one. Like wake up every day, work ethic, wanting to kick ass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fascinating to me. You know, having worked, you know, all my, you know, I'm I'm soft on the arts. You know, <laughs> I mean, like the Hollywood movie producers, I'm sure, and the studios are 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 this type. But this is you know, it's so foreign to me. That is fascinating. And plus, you don't think about it, right? You you see, I mean, I'm sure you've seen like Billions, the you know the Showtime, you know. Movie. I love Brian Koppelman's podcast. I have not I've only seen the pilot for uh, it's, uh, Billions, but I love so, the pilot. Well, that that's the intensity uh, on the buy side for a hedge fund, and your and your is that pretty accurate? Stocks. That show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm getting Showtime. I'm gonna watch this show. But on the sell side, though, like in you know, writing research, I mean, some people, like I said, view the job as more academics, right? Like, and and I, you know, we've done some controversial things. Like, I literally have called out competitors, like in a, you know, so we do just today. We did a, a conference call on uh, on um, the latest and greatest in immuno oncology agents, right? So this is affecting a few stocks that I cover and there are new developments for kidney cancer. Next, next week there's a um, new data for the first time ever that's out on a kidney cancer drug. Right. So uh, the question is, what does it mean for value of the companies and their, and the sales estimates? Right. So, you know, we had a, we had a 30 minute call with a, with a physician uh, who knows kidney cancer field really well. Uh, And then we had a 30 minute call of all of our, our sensitivity analyses and assumptions. Like if the data show X, then what does it mean to sales of the company, right? If they show Y, what does it mean, right? So, um, and so, you know, we'll, I mean, we do these calls and, and you know, with, with investors and sometimes we'll have 
50 people. Sometimes we'll have 250 people on the call, you know? And so um, when it's a hot topic, when it's a really like, you know, timely and whatever, like, I mean, I'm not afraid to say like this analyst, like, downgraded like last week which is ridiculous or you know, <laughs> yeah, okay just go for the, you know, the jugular but you can't you can't appear to be too negative right because a lot a lot of investors will know that analyst and are personal friends with them and they don't really like you kind of crapping in them but i'm not yeah. you know but the, the so the conviction like you know you have to sort of so it feels like somebody with your personality type is generally not on the research side but is on the like on a different side is that is that right I think or that's no? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that's that. That's yeah. a competitive advantage for you in you know in doing this. Yeah, uh, we we started to uh, um, this past. This was two years ago. So you've heard of activist investor, right? So an activist investor is if a public company is doing something wrong, right? Like if they are mismanaging, you know, they're they're keeping like an underperforming business, or they're not they're not delivering on what they promised, right? So an investor will come in, they'll write a letter. We'll say, you need, you know, our recommendation is you should do X, Y, or Z. And then the activist investor will buy some of the stock and maybe get a board seat and have some sort of leadership role at the company and try to force change, okay. right? Um, and so I've been doing this job so long that, you know, a couple of years ago, I started writing activist letters to companies that we cover. <laughs> As a researcher. Right. <laughs> and I have no, I have no, you know, I mean, they're very respectfully done, but right. like I, you kind of like, I mean, this, the, we wrote one in a company and literally the, we had more people download this report and read it in one day, right? It was like 800 people then had read our read our industry outlook for the year, which is a long project and a lot of Right. Tons of man hours. Over three months, right? And so and it's because it was like we just said what everyone was thinking, which is like you've had your glory days and now like you you're you take action. Like stop sitting on your hands. Like do a deal, right? Or um get rid of this underperforming business you know we said it in a diplomatic way but right. like you know th so that's new for me as an analyst um and i can tell you just by the look on your face I you enjoyed it. that a lot I love it yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um time's getting to be a factor so i want to move forward a little bit because there are yep. certain some things that i know i want to get to uh you're not with jp morgan now no so the um history is so uh, i covered for 10 years, I covered biotechnology at J.P. Morgan. Doing small and large cap. That's right. That's right. Look and at me uh, using these finance um, rooms. That's <laughs> and then um, I now work for Barclays, and um, they, uh, they called me in 2014 to cover major pharmaceutical stocks in addition to biotech. So they and kind of poached you? Would that be accurate, or is that how does that work in – yeah, I, I mean, the, you know, know you know other. when some positions are open. So um, I forget who approached who, but usually recruiters. I talk to recruiters all the time, so you kind of hear like what the chatter of who's looking and who's not. But this is a known position that was open because a biotech analyst was leaving, and they had a pharma analyst who left like six months before, a year before, right? And so at the time, it was unusual to cover. Two, two different verticals like that, like major pharma or the, you know, 
theoretically the slower growing, like bigger, much bigger cap companies. And then biotech was the more aggressively growing kind of wild west, you know, more volatile names. Okay. But the businesses are, are the same, right? More or less. And for many years, I'd always, as a biotech analyst, I'd always say, well, is it okay if I publish this sales figure for your pharma company? And now, like, I do it all myself. So I just put them all together. Right. I've been following indirectly pharma conference calls in the industry for my whole career, but now I get to directly cover it, right? Where's the passion coming from now? You've been doing this a while. Uh, is, is, it the, is it just your, your nature and the competitiveness and the wanting to do a job well and... I just like, you know, I, I like what I do. I don't, I mean, it's a grind. I'm not going to lie to you. Like, you know, I travel probably, I maybe do 150,000 miles a year. Um, but it doesn't, it, a lot of times doesn't feel like work. So like well, the, boom. you know, and so my wife always says, you know, well, you don't really do meetings. You just like shoot the shit with people, which is kind of how I look at it. Right. So, yeah. And talking like about something that you know about and have learned about yeah. and know well and like to talk about. But I mean, it could be mentally draining. Like I'll go, you know, so I'll go around the world. Like, I mean, not I don't I don't go to Asia anymore, but you know, U.S., Europe, you know, everywhere. Like I travel and you just do the same thing. Like one hour meeting after one hour meeting, right? You know, and and they're kind of the same, but like I know the people really well, and like I can. I remember what they had talked about before and, you know, it's, you know, so it's, um, so the, the marketing part of it, that's the marketing part, you know, I don't mind that at all. I like it. Um, when I'm here and, and when I'm here at home and I'm writing and in the office, you know, that, um, it's fun to kind of talk to the, you know, my team members and figure out like what projects we're working on. And like, I just, I feel like I do, I don't know. This sounds kind of corny. It's like I do like important stuff. Like we say this drug is better than the other ones or this company should go public, you know, and we resupport it. And if the firm does a transaction with it, you know, so be it. But um, we like the science here. Like, and, and we like it because we've talked to people, you know, right. and, and we want to, we want to help contribute to capital, going towards it right so it's yeah no how certain are you no <laughs> that was from billions <laughs> that was the pilot. That's the only thing. i just loved his answer it's like he goes it's like i am not uncertain <laughs> it's such a great answer because he had been to the warehouse and seen yeah, yeah, the things yeah, yeah. in there like is that yeah but I mean, no, that's probably it doesn't happen as much in uh in the biotech world you though you yeah. do you do see you know i mean there have been people that have been you know, put in jail for material non-public information, you know, and, and I know a lot of these people because I, they were my clients. So like I, you know, a couple of the people that have, that have been, you know, put in a slammer, like I look at my outlook and I'm like, I must have had like a wow. bunch of dialogue with them because that's my job. Right. Yeah. But, you know, I, I, I wasn't really called to, I mean, <laughs> they didn't give me anything. I mean, it wasn't, it didn't rise to the level of I was contacted, you know. When, uh, because this is this is very international and very New York based. This industry, correct? Yeah. Uh, we're not in New York. We're, we're taping this in, in Atlanta. How did that? How did you? How did you arrange that? How did that come about? Yeah. So and the, why? Tell me. Take, yeah, yeah. Take me through that whole thing. So, 
you know, promise three years, deliver nine. Um, <laughs> yeah. Always, always over deliver. <laughs> exactly. That's what I've learned from this. Um, the, uh, it was really straightforward. So there's an analyst who covered, J.P. Morgan, who covered <clears throat> medical devices who uh, was number one ranked and lived in Dallas. Um, and, uh, and then there's an analyst who was highly ranked, like, say, top three, who moved to Miami and so I always I talked to my boss when I was at JPM. I said, "Look, I want to <clears throat> I want to move back home at some point. Is that okay?" And he's like, "Yeah, absolutely." Um, and we were looking. I was in New York, and we were looking for. There weren't many offices here. Like they had a private equity office, a real estate office, but they didn't have a big presence in Atlanta. And then when J.P. Morgan bought Bear Stearns, and Bear Stearns had a big research department, they actually had the number one ranked biotech guy. And he always tells the story of he let me keep my job. That's complete bullshit. <laughs> the set the, the record straight, yeah. brother. Let me hear it. The the my boss said the day after the merger was announced, and it was like they were literally buying JPM's buying Bear Stearns for I think a dollar or two. It was like it was in the recession, right? It was 08. Yeah. Later raised to ten, I think. But said two things, Jeff. Call me up. He said, A, we're going with you, not the bear guy. I was like, thank you. He said, B, they have a huge office. Bear has a massive office in Atlanta. I'm like, done. So, like, before the thing even closed, like, I had already, like, rented a U-Haul and taken a bunch of crap down here. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and, and, and Betsy, my wife, had, had found us a great house. And at the time, our, our oldest son was only uh, two. We only had one. And um, so we just... We, so what was the impetus? Was this? I mean, obviously she was on her radar for a while. Yeah, yeah. And this is something. Were you looking forward? Looking, let's make this happen. Yeah, that also, that was the catalyst. Like basically, yeah. the, the my my job allowed me to work here, um, and and I wasn't as um, sorry, and I no wasn't worries. as I wasn't as worried about the uh, um, well, the last two people. In my job as an analyst who moved away from New York, um, fell massively in the rankings. The rankings are the, the your your hedge fund, mutual fund, and pension fund vote every year for their favorite analyst. They're called the institutional investor poll. So we've never been number one. I've been number two for literally ten years. Oh wow! But it's number two out of you know a f- like fifty or eighty people. So it's a lot. You know, it's. I mean, I I don't. Of course, I'd love to be one, and, and but yeah, I, don't, but, I don't live or die by it. But like, I'm happy to be where I where I am. I understand. And then in pharma, we've gone from like you know, uh, ten to like I think like six, five or six in the past since I've covered the space. So, um, but that's so when someone who's highly ranked, <clears throat> um, they can keep their ranking, then that's great, right? Uh, everyone's gunning for you though. But these two people moved from New York to Florida and they both went from like top three to like to like twenty. Why do you think that is? Because they kind of checked out. Like when they that's what everyone they were late in their career and everyone's like, oh, they're just messing around. So my first year down in Atlanta, um, we went bonkers. Like I went out of my way to like go to New York like every, you know, like very regularly. I still like literally paid New York taxes for a year and a half. Like I didn't, you know, um, we didn't change our residence, you know, yeah. um, we still, we paid George too, but, but you know, I took the higher of the two. 
Um, and we were there all the time and um, always on, on instant messaging on Bloomberg, you know, with, with him, with our traders and, and our, and after nine months, my trader who I talked to every day, was like, you live in Atlanta? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's exactly what like, you wanted to hear. Right? I know. I was like, <laughs> "Oh, you didn't know that." <laughs> Boom! That is so great. And so that was, and and I was really worried because everyone was telling me, you know, you're, uh, oh, you're checked out, and you're not going to be in the flow, and all this crap. And that was kind of the tone for a couple years, and that was only a couple years. Since then, everyone's like, well, "How can I get that gig?" Yeah, because no like you're not, you don't have the lemming mentality, right? I can sit here and shut my door, look out my window and like just think freely, right? And not be sort of beholden to my last 20 meetings that are within a 30 block radius and like have the same kind of No, it gives you a different perspective. Yeah. You're not the latest gossip, you know, you're hopefully it's more in-depth kind of what you can do, I would right. imagine. Um Give me some travel tips since you travel all the friggin' time. And I know it's probably rough, you know, being in the back of the plane at coach and <laughs> having no frequent flyer miles whatsoever. But so yeah. give me some travel Delta tips. Delta definitely. From my uh, pro. Definitely. Del Delta definitely helps out. Um, you always got to go to the, f you just know who's going to be slow in the <laughs> security line. Like if you see, you know, family, like, kids. Yeah. You got to avoid that. Um, I uh, I always like put in my little earbuds, you know, um, on any flight because people look over to you like when you're sitting down, like, "Hey, so going home or what?" You know, and then like three hours go by, right? And it's like, right. and it's someone trying to sell you something. So like, I am kind of a jerk when I fly. I can just very like blinders on and just try to get stuff done. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, um, I guess I'm lucky because I have like, you know, a TSA and I know it, you know, I have my own routine, like at, you know, at the Atlanta airport, I know, you know, always where to get a parking spot, you know, yeah. I know how to, you know, what times of the, of the day are good or bad, you know, and then, um, I have a little leather over-the-shoulder travel bag that... A European carry-all? Correct. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a purse. Um, Sounds like a purse. People make fun of it, but uh, it, it'll it fit, you know, two or three days. But I went, to, I went to Asia for six days in it, and, like, it fits in every overhead compartment oh, like wow. on any plane, right? Um, what brand? I don't know. It's just something we got like years ago when we went to Italy on vacation. Well, sorry guys, yeah. I was gonna help you out. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So and so, how often are you back in New York now, physically? I mean, I go back probably not as often as I used to. Uh, definitely not as often as when I first moved down here to Atlanta. Um, I mean, it's 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 not. It's maybe once or twice a, a month. You know, for um, sometimes it's one day, sometimes it's like, you know, I'll do like three days in a row. But like what I've learned, though, and the, there's a cadence to the business. And so, you know, January through May, you heard the term sell in May and go away. I'm not. That's kind of it's to some degree true. Um, the busy part of this of my year and, and the whole the whole job is really January through, let's say, June. 
Okay. And, you know, you got to think about this from a human perspective, like the investors that are buying and selling and, and, and investing in, in equities or really any any um, uh, type of uh, instrument. Um, you know, they're, most of their kids are out of school, like, you know, June, July, August. Like, no one wants to see you in July or August. Yeah. Like, they're not – I rarely do any meetings there. And so, like, between Memorial Day and Labor Day, it slows down, right? So yeah. I don't do – I do rarely do any traveling, like, for work in the in the summer periods and in the fall. Uh, like, for example, like, during earnings season, when companies report, there's, you know, three weeks of, like, hell where you have all these, you know, one-hour calls and stocks are flying around. No one has time to meet with you, you know? So you got to pick your battles. You got to know when – people have you know when their schedules are such where they could even do a meeting with you right so that's that tends to dictate my my travel and the and the cadence of stuff uh any material differences between working for barclays and working for jp morgan other than the like a change in job kind of thing or no you know most people do these things the same way i guess there are a lot of analysts that for analysts that have been in this job as long as i have like almost almost 20 years like i I've only I've only been to three banks, but there are people that have been to like ten, right? Oh, really? Yeah. So there's some people move around quite a bit. Uh, if you're in the if you work for a boutique, you tend to move from boutique to boutique depending on your your sector, right? So biotech tends to be a very banking heavy sector. A lot of capital is raised, right? And 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 the banks make money off of it. Um, but I'd say the culture is. I mean, it, they're pretty. It's pretty similar. Um, I. I you know, you could say like most of the banks today are very compliance and legal heavy, like, you know, and, and they're just different animals or different types. They're Barclays is paranoid about one thing that JPM didn't really care about in the reverse, you know? Okay. Uh, how is working, working well, how, how does it working wall street? How does it change your own investments and your own investment philosophy with what, what you do personally? Yeah, I can't, I can't, obviously invest in, in stocks or the sector that I directly follow. Um, and I tend to, um, I look at, I look at creative stuff. Yeah. So I have to obviously get, you know, compliance approval on any investment. So I, I do have a lot of, uh, um, investments in private companies. I didn't actually start doing that until I moved down to Atlanta, uh, which is pretty neat, like an angel investment, right. And, and, uh, technology or digital media, um, fintech, you name it, right? So a lot of what's fintech? Financial technology. Okay. Um, so the um, they're just small companies, startups, basically that they're that are here or in this region that I've invested in. Um, but I have to get approval for those. But that's that's kind of like, I mean, I, mentally I sort of write it off when I when I make that investment because I have no. It's it's high risk. You don't have a lot of visibility and it's not liquid. You can't really sell it, right? Um, but I, I do tend to my a successful investment strategy that I've had, and it's completely random. But the the analysts that are highly ranked at a firm, either you know Barclays or when I was at JPM, um, some of them are good at being ranked, and some of them are good stock pickers. And so I talk to the salespeople, I talk to the traders, and say like, well, who who's like a good like good good sense for where a stock's gonna go and so i would come up with like three or four people and i got you know i got to know them over the years and so i would tend to buy 
stuff that they recommended in their in their sector. Gotcha. So, so I've I've had all kinds of random like anything from coffee to um, steel to uh, um, copper to internet technology. To, I mean, all kinds of random stuff that you know. But there's just they're just trades. I mean, I what I generally figured out over the years is that you know you're better off going with the mutual fund which is kind of i know the portfolio manager i know the the fund manager and i like their philosophy and and i just buy their fund gotcha and it's not as wild west or volatile uh you're mid-40s about yeah what um what do you what do you want to be doing mid-50s that's a good question. I mean, I like the job. I, you know, I, I'd love to, I'd love to run a drug company um, at some point down the road. I've seen a lot of a lot of companies, a lot of executives make mistakes, strategic mistakes. Um, but it, it it's hard to do that from Atlanta. I mean, the industry is mostly in Boston and in San Francisco. Um, but. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like the not just the investor piece, but the the strategy stuff really is is exciting to me. You know, because you have to the companies that I follow, for example, they eighty ninety percent of the of the revenue, you know, is one drug, and that one drug is going to go off patent at some point, whether it's three years or ten years, and you got to figure out how to have the the encore. Right, you know, and their company after company after company that I've followed over the years has made the mistake of not figuring out the encore soon enough, and so I don't know. I've learned I've learned just over the years what companies do right and what they do wrong, and yeah. so that I feel like that would be helpful. But I, you know, I'm not an operations guy. I'm not your guy who's like you know, tax audit like all the nitty gritty like you know save money on the financials stuff. somehow or <laughs> yeah or that's not me increase operation efficiency <laughs> yeah that's, that's, that's not, not gonna me. be it uh what do you do for fun because you work a ton i, I do work in yeah. you, you work very hard hang out with the fam yeah um kids all play you know sports um soccer um basketball ballet gymnastics i do a lot i'm like the uber driver <laughs> on the weekends my wife and i um have a lot of busy schedule with the kids um i like to play golf uh, i think the i didn't actually start playing golf until we moved down here i played 20 rounds of golf my whole life and so we moved down here 10 years ago and you know we we live like you know an eighth of a mile from from our club and uh uh, she was kind of like, you pick a, pick a sport, like tennis, golf, whatever. And I'm like, well, let's do golf. <laughs> All right, you got to do – And I like it, though, because, like, I, I have to concentrate for, like, multiple hours, you know, four or five hours for a round, but, like, on something as stupid as hitting a ball. Right. And nothing, like, I, yeah, it clears my mind. It like, does relax you. Know, you. Yeah. yeah. I'm not very good at it, but <laughs> – <laughs> Uh, let's talk to New York for a little bit. Your what's your favorite bar in New York? Oh, jeez. Um, and you can give me different settings too. It could be a business cocktail, or it could also be a drink with your boys. Yeah, I like uh, um, 
we used to live down in the um, West Village for a couple of years, and uh, I love uh, the history of Chumley's. Oh yeah, going you know like you had the knock on the door right, and and um, a lot of stuff with like the Midtown area is kind of I don't know antiseptic. Yeah, definitely. But uh, uh, my wife used to work by the uh, Four Seasons restaurant, uh, which was really like it's a scene, but it's, yeah, it was the place. A bit older scene, but like it's definitely a business kind of um, that. That was always interesting. You'd always see somebody there. Yeah, um, you remember Chumley's had the the hill. Yeah, yeah, that's the, right. For, and then that's where eighty six came from, also. Yeah, uh, I like I'm a fan of that place too. Or was? Yeah, I'd say of the, the area we lived in the uh, Upper East for a couple of years, Upper uh, uh, West Village for a couple of years, and then bought a place on the Upper West. And um, by far the the West Village was the most fun. It had to be. A lot of the restaurants and bars that we went to are like not even there anymore. So, you know, Mexicana Mama, we used to love to go to. That was like, a, I think it's like six tables, you know. Um, yeah. Matthew Broderick and Sarah Jessica Parker went there all the time. We used to see them there. Um, and it's a great place. Uh, did you have a favorite bookstore, either in New York or just growing up or anything? Are you a reader? Yeah. Um, I am, but I, I, over the years I've just, you know, just downloaded, you know, it's more. You do audiobooks? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't have as much time for that, you know, uh, for that now. Um, yeah. you know, it's, uh, um, when I have a, when I have a break, I just tend to listen, just listen to music and kind of chill. Okay. What, um. I'm definitely a Atlanta by sort of bias, probably 90%, uh, not 90, maybe 75% like hip hop on my, on my phone. I used to love to go to concerts. I don't have much time for that now, but like, I would love to do that like aspirationally <laughs> as a life goal. Yeah. Going to school in Athens really, I mean, it, right. It gives you like a real appreciation. Like I'd, Love like REM and Allman Brothers as a as a college student and that whole genre. So that's I can't. That was a much more fun to see live, right? Yeah. Than, uh, than anything else. Uh, so since you do travel a lot, do you have a regular place to all go for vacation? Do you? Is that something, or is vacation for you just hunker down at home and happy and like don't? No, nah, we got a uh, we travel a decent amount uh, in the in the off periods um we just started doing a ski trip um a couple of years ago um when our kids were old enough you know to go um and we're going actually next week um but the uh the my collarbone injury is was kind of painful i forgot um, all about that yeah. are you healed i mean yeah, yeah, uh, for the most part yeah, okay yeah broke collarbone four ribs punctured lung not good. <laughs> How did you do that? Remind me. Uh, we just we went to uh, we went to Telluride and the uh, uh, my edge got caught and just flipped me down like about twenty five feet like into rocks and stumps and so it 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 wasn't really a part of the, the snow. The base was modest. I think there were ten runs open out of one hundred and fifty or something like that. Oh wow! Uh, but we go to Nantucket, 
So when we were in New York, um, uh, my wife's job was such where she didn't get a lot of advance notice on vacation. And so um, a friend of ours recommended it. And um, we found a house there when our when our oldest son at the time, he was like less than six months old. And um, we've been going there since. That's like heaven on earth. Like I think it's our 12th year now. Oh, going. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, what would other people say your superpower is? To have an opinion, but not force it on you. Right. You know? Not be jerky about it. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, well, Jeff, just thank you very much for your time. I yeah. really, really appreciate it. This was a blast, Michael. Well, thank you very much, Jeff Meacham. All uh, right. We'll see you soon. Thanks, Michael. Thank you for listening to the Origin Story Podcast. The show is produced by Pinecone Turkey. To learn more about Pinecone Turkey, visit pineconeturkey.com, where you can sign up for the Flock email, a twice-a-month newsletter that delivers a short film, poetry, a short story, and visual art right to your inbox. It's your monthly dose of art curated by Pinecone Turkey. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by leaving us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for listening.